Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God. For the past month, we've been looking at the core values of Metro. And it's because in Metro, we're seeing a a huge shift in the number of people that are coming and have been coming to Metro over the course of the last two years. Right now, we see that just about one out of every two people attending our church uh, have never really delved into what the core values really mean. And so we thought it'd be important to go through our core values uh, this season. And what are core values? They're the pillars, they're the enduring tenets of our ministry. And for the past month, We've been looking at scripture passages that help us to see who Jesus actually is. In other words, what does it mean to understand, to know the gospel? And this passage focuses on a conversation, a kind of a disjointed conversation between three men on the cross where Jesus died. These are three dying men. And each of them says something that helps us to understand who Jesus is, why he died. So there are three points, very simple. Each point represents one of the dying men. We have the first dying man, the second dying man, and the third dying man. The first dying man. The first dying man says in verse 39, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And this teaches us why it's so easy to miss Jesus, to not get the gospel. And there are two reasons. One, the first uh, thing you see in verse 35 to 36. In verse 35, you have what? You have the rulers. They're the religious people. And they say, if you're the Christ, if you're the chosen person, save yourself. On the other hand, in verse 36, you have the soldiers, the Romans. They're the irreligious. They represent the irreligious. And they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The rulers are people who are known to be in the religious community. And the soldiers, they're known to be in the irreligious community. Usually the religious and the irreligious, they're usually opposed to each other. But here we see them agreeing. They're pretty much saying the same thing. What are they saying? You can't be the Christ. You can't be the one who's been chosen to save the world. You can't be the king. The cross assumes an exclusivity. Inherently an exclusivity, which means uh, the justice of God. The justice of God is inherent in Christianity. And, and because, it's because only the holy people, only the holy 
can enter, can gain access to God. It's something that the liberals and the secular community just absolutely uh, just abhor. They're irreligious. They just can't accept that. But Christianity also assumes an inclusivity, an incredible, remarkable inclusivity. Jesus Christ here demonstrates mercy to sinners. He invites the broken, the sinful. That's something that the conservative community, the religious community just absolutely abhor. They can't accept that. Now, in our community, we're always going to have people who toggle back and forth between one and the other. We struggle with the holiness of God on one hand, or we struggle with the love of God. We struggle with the justice of God on one hand, or the mercy of God on the other hand. We struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and his claims, and the inclusivity of Christ's welcome. And as a result, we just absolutely, because of our focus on these things, we just miss Jesus altogether. We don't get him. But secondly... Why did the rulers and the soldiers, why did the religious and the irreligious both reject Jesus? And the answer is this. It's because Jesus fails the biggest test for anyone who's looking for a God, for anyone who's looking for a Savior. In verse 39, the first criminal says, if you're the Christ, get me out. In other words, look, I have needs. I'm praying to you. Right? Because he's talking to Jesus. I'm praying to you. I have needs. Fulfill my needs. We've all said something like this before. If you're God, then you would give me what I need. You would give me what I'm asking for. Get me out of this mess. Help me escape. I'm in this huge jam. Where were you when this was going on in my life? Where were you when all this brokenness and all this, all this guilt or all this, all this, uh, terror or horror is going on in my life? Where were you when I was suffering? Because if you were there, I would have believed. If you don't help me, it must be because you don't exist. Now think about this. Is it good logic? Is it good logic to say, if I can't explain my suffering, then a God who can must not exist? We often go to God with the posture of, and and it's very subtle sometimes, I have a view of how my life should be. And if you help me, then I'll trust you. But see, if that's how you come to God, he's not God. You're not coming to God for God. You're coming to God for things. You're not coming to God for God. You're coming to God really as someone who works for you, reports to you. He's your employee. A God that is the product or the sum of all of your desires, but is unable to challenge your desires, cannot be God. That kind of God does not exist. But that's why it's so easy to miss Jesus, the first dying man says, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself, save us. The rulers and the soldiers, they say, save yourself. They all miss Jesus. Why? Because in their mind, they believe that a true chosen person, a true king, a true savior, a true God would never, ever be on the cross. He would never suffer. God would never work through someone who is weak like that. That's the first dying man. Totally missed Jesus. Now the second dying man then teaches us how you can actually get Jesus. How do you actually get the gospel? The second dying man, you see, he's hanging on the cross. He hears the crowd and they're jeering and they're mocking. He hears the first criminal and the taunting. And he says two things which shows us that he sees the difference between God as a means of escape And God as these escape. You see, both men, they're in the same situation. They're on the cross. 
They're both suffering. They're both experiencing tremendous humiliation. On the cross, they're dying. So they have the same felt pain. They have the same needs. The first one, he's just like the crowd, the first dying man. But the second dying man, he's completely different. They're both turning to God, but one of them is turning to God to reject him. The other is turning to Jesus because he's been changed. Now, we all start out like the first dying man. We all have a particular view of God as somebody who can really just supplement or, or improve us to some degree. Uh, and there's almost like a give or take relationship that we often have with God. But we need to make the shift, a dramatic shift to the second dying man. What does the second dying man say? In verses 40 to 42, he says, don't you fear God since we're on the same sentence? We were punished justly for getting the deeds that we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The first dying man says, get me out of my trouble. Get me out of my mess. Save yourself and save us. But the second dying man says, remember me. The first dying man says, save yourself. Save us. The second dying man, he never asks to get out of trouble. He says, I deserve this trouble. The first dying man says, I will stay with you if you get me out of the trouble. But the second dying man says, I will stay with the trouble if it gets me with you. The first dying man says, well, for the first dying man, Jesus Christ is negotiable. Getting out of the mess is what's non-negotiable in his life. The second dying man getting out of the trouble eventually becomes negotiable. Jesus and getting Jesus becomes non-negotiable. You see the difference? You see the change? In the end, we all have something that if we lose it, it feels like we're suffering. It feels like we're just dying. And as a result, we're afraid of those things. We're afraid of losing that thing. And so we're not willing to negotiate that thing. In fact, most of our lives, most of our time, most of our energy in our waking time, even in our dreams, are spent protecting those things that are non-negotiable in our lives. Whether it's money, or wealth, our power, approval, rising up, because that's influence and power and approval. Family, because that's influence and power and approval. Uh, whether it's our relationships, our significant others. This is what we call the center of our motivation our motivational center, and they act, they become like a functional God, an operational God in our lives, because whatever it is that we hold, that is our non-negotiable. Whatever it is that we say, if I lose the thing, it's going to feel like death. That's our non-negotiable in life. And so God becomes the negotiable thing. You may have started at some retreat camp experience, maybe for some of you in college, you came to know Jesus there. And in that moment, there's this extreme conviction of sin, knowing who Jesus is, and you give your life to Jesus. But what happens is over the course of time, as you get older, other things creep into your life that become non-negotiable. And when that thing becomes threatened, you're suffering. You're dying. Just like that first thief, you start to only go to God because you want escape, because you want relief, you want help. You're going to God for things. If you're starting to wake up like this second dying man, 
then you can see beyond your current situation. You can see beyond your condition, your current condition. And you start to see that these non-negotiables are actually weights in your life, dragging you to the bottom of the sea. You're drowning. You're sinking. What do you do? Stop praying for God to give you wealth. Stop praying for God to give you security. You're going, to, you're going to ultimate wealth, ultimate richness, and you're saying, I need wealth. You're going to ultimate security, and you're saying, I need security. You're going to ultimate power, and you're saying, I need power. You see that? Instead, pray for a security that goes so deep. Pray for a richness in your life that goes so deep, it's going to free you from the, get, from the grip of your wealth, from your bank account, from your salary, from your career, from your job. Stop praying for that particular person to be attracted to you. Instead, pray for an experience of love that satisfies the soul so deeply that you no longer crave the embrace of another person to give you a sense of worth. For people who are career folk, the weight is what? Getting ahead. It just drags you down. For parents, it's your children. For single folk... It's like finding your significant other. In each of these cases, we're doing it our own way, on our own terms. And when we're in trouble, because we're helpless, then that, it's the trouble that, that teaches us how helpless we really are. We never were on, it was never on our own terms. No matter what you do on your own, you can't get there. You're in trouble. Then we go to God. The second criminal, he does something that's only possible. We're all stuck here. Our sin not only makes us blind, but it chains us to this condition. It's sin. This second criminal, he does something that's only possible if God is working in his life. Remember who he is. He's on the cross. And so he can't be your typical criminal. Romans were only crucified. Uh, Romans only crucified national threats. National societal threats. This man could have easily said, you know, I'm, I'm a martyr. He could have justified himself. But no, he says, Jesus is the one who's innocent. We deserve to die. See, a lot of people hate that. They say, you know, this is why I hate organized religion, institutional religion, because it makes us feel bad about ourselves. Look, religious people, they avoid feeling bad about themselves. That's why they tire themselves out. They're constantly working. They're constantly serving. That's why there's this almost like a, a, a flywheel of insecurity that just moves you and pushes you to always find your wealth or your, your approval, your acceptance in, the, in the, applaud of other, the applause of other people. And so we're constantly looking for people to love us. We're constantly working for people to er- love us. We're constantly trying to earn people's acceptance and love and their respect. This man's very different. Religious people say, look what I've accomplished. Don't I deserve something? Look what I've sacrificed. I deserve more than this, this suffering. I deserve more than that person. And we say, and we say this, especially when we're in trouble. We pray, please rescue me. But we don't get what we want. We get so disappointed. We get so angry. Why? You owe me, we say. God owes me. I've been good. I'm not that bad. God owes me. Whether you're that first dying man or a religious person, we're both trying to use Jesus. We're both trying to save ourselves on our own terms. We don't know Jesus. We don't have a relationship with Jesus. We never truly had a real relationship, real intimacy with Jesus. 
And so what results is a lot of entitlement, a lot of feeling of, you know, I deserve better, and we're desperate. And that, when you live that way, it shows because you start to turn on people. You start to turn on uh, people you love. You start to turn on people who are actually for you and love you. The second dying man, he's totally the opposite. He owns his sin. He doesn't say, I deserve better. He says, I deserve to die. He sees Jesus, admits who he is, and look, how much did he really need to know? He knew just enough about Jesus to say what he says in verse 42. He pleads to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me. How much faith did that man have? That was probably the first prayer that he ever prayed. You see, faith is not so much about magnitude as much as it is about direction. The man turns to Jesus and he says, remember me. I know you. Take me in. I don't deserve you to remember me. I haven't earned access. It's all by sheer grace. What happens? Well, that takes us to the third dying man. The third dying man is Jesus. Jesus is on the cross. And he says in verse 43, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What does that mean? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. In the Greek, that phrase is translated as amen. Usually, when a rabbi is teaching, he ends with amen. In ancient times, when you heard somebody teach, or you heard somebody say some truth, some biblical utterance, some truth, after some reflection, after some research, some validation, some processing, after you hear it, if you believe that to be true, if you agree, you would say amen. But Jesus, even while he's on the cross, even while he's dying, he says amen first. He's taking away your right to validate him. That's why the rulers hated him. That's why the religious people hated him. They wanted to kill him. Because even while he was on the cross, to say amen before the teaching is to say, you have no authority to validate me or what I'm about to tell you. The only person who could ever validate me is the one who is the author. The one who's there from the beginning. That's the only one. The only one who can teach with total authority, he says. What is the root word of authority? It's author. Jesus Christ is saying to the second criminal, I have full authority and power to say this to you. You don't need to validate me. Just trust me. Amen. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I am the author. I am the designer. I am the perfecter of your faith. Now, people often focus on the word today, or they focus on the word paradise. Even now, what they're saying is, even now, it's an evangelistic sermon. Even now, are you in trouble? Today, you can be with Jesus in paradise. Now, Jesus is not saying less than that, but he's saying so much more. Jesus is not saying as the main point, you know, when you die today, you're going to be able to hang out with me in a very, very different world that is just full of comfort and relief and joy. He's not sentimentalizing death here. Remember, these are some of Jesus' final words. And when you're about to die, every word that you say is going to be intentional. The central focus of what Jesus says here is, you will be with me. That's what he says. You will be with me. That's a central point. That's the promise. What does that mean? In John chapter 17, Jesus Christ is praying 
what is known as the high priestly prayer for all believers. It's written in your call to worship. And in this prayer, Jesus prays, Father, I want you to love them even as you love me. In other words, I have the glory. I want them to have it. I have your love. I want them to have it. I have your peace. I want them to have it. I have your joy. I want them to have your joy and your victory. I want, I have your inheritance. I want them to have it. I have the wealth and the richness and the power for all eternity. I have the status as your son, a deep, perfect relationship with you, and I want them to have it. And he sums it all up by saying, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. He's not saying, I want them to be in this location where he was praying. He's he's not talking about a place per se. He's not talking about some location in that moment, some escape to some other place. He's talking about a position. He's talking about a status. You having a place with Jesus. See, Christianity is not just some escape from reality. It's a renewed reality altogether. How do you get it? It's a whole new reality. How do you get it? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I am not with you. I am no longer with you. I've lost my status. I've lost my position. And so I've been rejected. I've been cut off. Isaiah chapter 53 says, he's been cut off from the land of the living. I'm in ultimate suffering because I've been separated from God. God who is my sole source of worth. God who is my center. God is the one person that I will never negotiate. He's my non-negotiable. And I have become negotiated. I've been sold out. As a payment for the penalty of our sins. What a call. In a sense... It's what we call the covenant of redemption between God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. But why? Why was Jesus rejected on the cross? Why was Jesus Christ disowned and separated from God on the cross? Why was he cut off on the cross? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ was disowned by God so that we could be owned by God. Jesus Christ was cut off from God so that we would be grafted into God. Jesus Christ was without God so that you, so that we could be with him. The cross satisfies both the justice of God that demands holiness and the mercy of God that calls sinners and the broken. The cross satisfies the holiness of God, which is why we couldn't have access with the love of God, which is why we can have access. And so on the cross, the justice of God and the mercy of God join. The holiness of God and the love of God embrace. So Jesus is saying to this criminal and he's saying to us, whether or not you die today, you can have a place with me today. Even if you're not at that final place yet, you can still have that status today. You can still have that position now. And you can live out of that status and that position today. That's the only reality that's going to give you poise in the midst of suffering. The only reality that's going to give you a confidence when you are in the fire, when you are in trouble. So that you're not always looking to escape 
from this present reality because you already have a place with Jesus. There's the validation. When you look at the cross, there's the validation. There's the worth that you need, the worth that you've been looking for all your life. There's the richness and the power and the love and the embrace that you've been looking for and working for all your life. And it's freely offered from Jesus, by Jesus, through the cross. Or, if you don't believe, you're going to work for those non-negotiables in your life. And those non-negotiables, the reason why we're working so hard is because they are our escape. That's what's going to protect us. That's what's going to give us a sense of worth until you lose them. And at some point in life, we will lose all these things. If you lose them sooner, it leads us to despair. It's as if we've already died. Or you're going to lose yourself in them. And then as a result, you're going to lose your life even before you die. And there will be despair. You're going to end up like that first dying man, no matter what. Very disappointed. Make Jesus your non-negotiable. Get Jesus. Get the gospel. He becomes your rescue. He becomes your worth, no matter your trouble. And you will be with him and with God in incredible intimacy until Jesus returns. And then we will be with him in paradise. Let's pray.